So welcome, welcome if you're joining us at home on the live stream. I pray that the Spirit of God is filling you in your home the way that He is filling us here. As we prepare, as I prepare to celebrate Easter this year, I was thinking about certain points in history, certain events that have such a dramatic impact on on the course of history and, and culture that you look back at them and you see them as a turning point, right? This defining events, these watershed moments that have occurred in the history of, of our nation, in the history of the world, where, where nothing is the same afterward. Right? And you could think about the Declaration of Independence or the end of the Civil War and the emancipation of the slaves. You can think in modern history about the assassination of, of, of Kennedy or the assassination of MLK or the, or the moon landing or the terrorist attacks of 9-11. Some good, some bad. But each of these events in their own way are turning points, right? But, but these are limited in scope. They only impact U.S. history, right? What about, if you think more broadly, what about things that have been turning points in the history of the entire world? Certain technological advances, right? You could say the invention of electricity or the car or the invention of the TV or the, the home computer, right? The, the, the first day that Candy Crush launched. I mean, these certain points in history that, that everything is the same, right? Nothing, nothing ever is the same after some of these turning points. The COVID pandemic of the 21st century, I believe we're going to look back in generations and see that it will have a lasting impact, a turning point in modern history. But you could also look more personally at your own life, turning points that are specific to you. The day that, that maybe you suddenly lost a parent or, God forbid, suddenly lost a child. Maybe the day that you yourself had a near-death experience was a turning point, a watershed moment. Maybe it's the day when you first met your spouse or the birth of your first child or the day that the Lord answered your prayer in a profound way. We all have these personal turning points that have altered the course of our lives. But of course, there is one event that's changed the entire course of human history that has impacted literally every continent of the world. The resurrection of Jesus is the turning point of all world history. The resurrection of Jesus is the bedrock of our faith, the foundation of the gospel. Without the resurrection, the birth of Christ, the life of Christ, even the death of Christ would be meaningless. The Word of God says this in 1 Corinthians 15. Paul says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And he says in verse 17, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. See, if Christ has not been raised, if this is all made up, if it's not true, then then, then our faith is futile. It's meaningless. We're still in our sins, but Christ has been raised. And you see, that Sunday morning at sunrise, some 2,000 years ago, when Jesus walked out, listen, He walked out of a tomb, everything changed. It was the high point of salvation history, the pinnacle of the old covenant anticipation, the climax of Jesus' redemptive work, the very foundation of the Christian church. But the real question today is not, how was Christ's resurrection the turning point of all of human history? The question that is most relevant to each of us is, how is His resurrection the turning point of your life? How will you now be transformed inside and out, now and forever, because of His resurrection? If you were with us on, on Friday night, we heard Luke's narrative of Jesus' death on the cross. 
And Luke will go on to describe at the end of his gospel how a wealthy member of the Jewish council, Joseph of Arimathea, buried Jesus in a tomb at the end of the day on Friday. And the women that had faithfully followed Jesus from Galilee, they go home because it's the Sabbath, and they come back the first chance they get at sunrise Sunday morning, and what do they find? The stone has been rolled away. The tomb is open and empty, and there's two angels there, Luke tells us, that, that announce that Jesus has risen. And they immediately run and they tell the rest of the disciples and Peter comes to the tomb, he investigates for himself and later that day Jesus appears to two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And the scriptures say that that Jesus opened their minds to understand the scriptures, to understand how everything written about him foreshadowed that the Messiah would suffer, would rise again on the third day. And Jesus told his disciples, his followers, that they were to be his witnesses to proclaim the gospel, to proclaim the resurrection across the world. And Luke's gospel ends, but his narrative, his account doesn't end there because he picks it up in his volume two, which is the book of Acts. Volume one, the life of Jesus. Volume two, the life of the early church. And we often think about the book of Acts as a book about the apostles, about the early church. But, but really, the book of Acts is about the resurrection. Look, at, look and listen to what Brandon Crow says. Acts presents Jesus as the resurrected, ascended, and glorious King of Kings who is guiding His church, pouring out His Spirit, and granting forgiveness. On the one hand, everything changed when Christ raised from the dead. At the same time, the scriptures are fulfilled, which means the resurrection isn't fundamentally new, but a goal anticipated for thousands of years. The book of Acts shows us how the resurrection is the key turning point in the history of redemption. And so this morning, we're going to look at the book of Acts. We're going to see that it's all about the resurrection, that the resurrection is the bedrock of the message the apostles preached The resurrection is is what is driving the growth of the early church. The resurrection is manifesting and empowering through His presence, through the presence of the Holy Spirit in the lives of those early believers. Now here's what happened. After the resurrection, Jesus remained on earth for 40 days. He appeared to His disciples. He spends time with them. He's teaching them. He's preparing them for Him to leave. And the opening of the book of Acts is Jesus ascending back up into heaven, rising up in, in the presence of the disciples, lifted up into the sky. The apostles then followed the instructions of Jesus. He said, go back to Jerusalem, to the capital city. By the way, the place where I was just crucified. The place where, where, where every uh, leader, religious, political, wants me and any of my followers dead. He said, go back to that city and wait. He said, wait for the promise of the Holy Spirit. Because they could not begin their mission without the sending of the Holy Spirit. And so 120 disciples, Luke, the historian, tells us, go back to Jerusalem. And while they're waiting, the apostles decide they want to replace Judas. You remember Judas had betrayed Jesus. He had taken his own life. And Acts chapter 1 records that they wanted a 12th apostle. Why? To be a witness to the resurrection. See, these first disciples and apostles knew that the survival of their movement depended upon verifying the reality of the resurrection and proclaiming the hope of the resurrection. And ten days after Jesus rose from the dead, as they are gathered together on the feast of Pentecost, the celebration of of the harvest, they're gathered together, and, and Luke describes that suddenly a rushing wind fills the place, and the Holy Spirit descends and fills each of them with the Holy Spirit. They begin to speak in Spirit-inspired utterances, and there's all this noise and commotion in the house where they're gathered, and so a crowd is attracted 
And, and Jews from all over the Mediterranean world that had come into Jerusalem for that festival gather together outside the house and they hear the disciples proclaiming God's mighty works, but each of them hear it in their own language. And Peter stands up to address the crowd to explain what's going on and he says that, that what's happening is fulfilling the prophecy of Joel. The Spirit is being poured out on God's sons and daughters. And then in verse 22, open up there in the Acts Chapter 2, verse 22, we're going to read this in a moment, but he begins Peter that day proclaiming on the streets of Jerusalem what is the first Christian sermon, the first gospel proclamation. Now look, sometimes it's assumed that first century people were ignorant or primitive or, or, or they just believed in superstitious fantasies and supernatural myths, and that somehow in the first century the resurrection would have just been widely accepted. To, to think that way is, is to be arrogant, is to somehow think that, that we in the 21st century are more sophisticated and, and, and more, more intelligent. That simply is not the case. Chapter 4 records that Peter and John were arrested. Why? Because they were teaching about the resurrection. Peter and the apostles continue to proclaim the resurrection in the streets before the ruling council of the city, spreading out to the surrounding region. And they proclaim that the resurrection has fulfilled the old covenant, that it's validated that Jesus is the Messiah, that, that the resurrection is what's empowering the miracles of the early church. It's the basis of their salvation. Acts 4, 33, they say, With great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And this wasn't just Peter and those early disciples. In chapter 13, Luke in his book of Acts changes and he focuses on Paul. And we see the same thing. Paul, this educated, deeply religious Pharisee, he teaches the good news of all that God promised. All that God promised has now been fulfilled in the reality of God raising Jesus from the dead. And again, I want to reiterate, this was not an era where everybody just believed in miracles and resurrections. That's simply not the case. The Jews weren't the only one to reject the message of the early Christians. In chapter 17, we see that the Greeks and the Romans in Athens mocked Paul. Why do they mock him? For preaching the hope of the resurrection. For preaching Jesus. Later in chapter 23, Paul is arrested. He's arrested by the Romans, supposedly for being a ringleader, for stirring up unrest in the cities. But Paul himself says, look, the real reason I'm being arrested is for proclaiming the hope of the resurrection from the dead. You cannot read the book of Acts without seeing the centrality and the fundamental truth of the resurrection. Luke, in his historical account, makes it abundantly clear that the resurrection of Jesus is the turning point of history. It's the fulfillment of the Old Testament, the foundation of the Christian faith, the cornerstone of the early church. And it's the only thing, it's the only thing that could have empowered the explosion that is the early church that floods out across the Mediterranean world, that draws thousands, that literally altered the course of history and culture throughout the centuries. And so I hope and pray that you are getting a glimpse and that you are convinced that the resurrection is the turning point of history. But, but more than that, more than that, I hope and I pray that your faith is stirred as we look at the Word of God, that the resurrection would be the turning point of your life. Whether that begins today for the first time you put your hope in Christ, or whether you're reminded of the turning point whether months or years or decades ago when you first trusted in Jesus. So let's read together Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 22. Pull it up in your Bible or on your phone. I want to follow along. We're going to read and unpack that first Christian sermon, the hope of the resurrection declared through the, the mouth of Peter that day. 
But I'm going to pray the Lord helps us. God in heaven, send your Holy Spirit now as we read your word, as we build upon the, the foundation of the resurrection, stir our hearts. Pray that you'd build faith in this room, that you would that you'd work through my mouth, that you would bless the ears of those that hear. That we would be challenged and encouraged that most of all our faith would be stirred to walk in obedience. To walk new in Christ. Send your Holy Spirit now. In Jesus' name, amen. Listen to these words recorded for us. Men of Israel, Peter says, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself said, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand, until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. Listen to those words. The Holy Spirit inspired Peter to proclaim that, that the Holy Spirit inspired Luke to write. He begins there in verse 22. He begins with Jesus, with Jesus of Nazareth, a man that would have been well known in the city at that time, but it was, and it was well attested. It, w- it was verified that Jesus had come from God. And Peter's going to unpack that Jesus was crucified by the plan of God. But he begins with Jesus' identity. His divine identity that had been substantiated because of all of Jesus' mighty signs and wonders that he had done, casting out demons and walking on water and feeding the multitude and healing the sick and raising the dead. And Jesus had done all of these signs in public. Peter says, in your midst. See, the miracles of Jesus couldn't be disputed and it was clear that he had been sent by God. 
And so Peter will say in verse 23, this Jesus had been executed by Roman crucifixion only seven weeks earlier. And this, this too was well attested. It was, it was undeniable. But Peter is going to say that this was no accident. This was not a mistake. Yes, Jesus had been delivered over to the Romans. He says not just with God's knowledge, but with God's foreknowledge. In other words, God's divine knowledge ahead of time of what would happen. But Peter says something even more. He says that not just God's foreknowledge did this happen, but it was according to God's definite plan, his predetermined plan. See, God works all things according to his will. He has arranged them from before the foundation of the world, and and he had arranged his son to be crucified. You say, wait a minute, but what about the Jewish leaders? What about Pilate and the Romans? Yes, they were part of God's plan. God used the sinful and selfish ambition of the Jewish council to have Jesus arrested. God used the lawless men he refers to in there in 23. That's the Romans. He used their sinful desire to dominate the Jews, to bring compliance, to have Jesus crucified. Peter's going to say again in chapter 4 in another sermon that Herod, Pontius Pilate, the Gentiles, all the Israelites were, were all doing what the plan of God had predestined to take place. And so we ask ourselves, well, what was the betrayal of Jesus, his arrest, the false conviction, the beating, the crucifixion? Was that a grave injustice? Was that the result of deception and ambition and the corrupt sinful nature of the people around him that day? Yes, yes it was. But it was also God's good plan. His perfect plan to offer His Son as a sacrifice for sin. To deliver His chosen sons and daughters from death. See, there is mystery. There is mystery in the works of God. But the Scriptures are very clear that God is sovereign. That He ordains all things which come to pass. And humans make real choices. Humans are responsible for their actions in the midst of God's sovereign plan. Friends, listen, hear this this morning. The death of Jesus was no accident. It was no unplanned tragedy. And I think sometimes we misunderstand the gospel. We misunderstand the foresight and the thought and the premeditation and the planning that Jesus, the Son, that the Father, that the Holy Spirit had put together. And we miss the intentionality of the gospel. Sometimes... People try to explain the gospel with this uh, drawbridge operator analogy. And anybody ever heard the story of the drawbridge operator who brought his son to work as an illustration? Okay, a couple of you. You can YouTube it later. There's even a video format. And here's how the story goes. This drawbridge operator goes every day to the drawbridge. The bridge remains open so that, that tall ships can pass underneath the bridge. But once every hour, a train comes and the drawbridge operator is responsible to close the drawbridge. And the story goes that on this day, he brings his, his young son to work with him. And his son is, is interested in all the gears and the dials and the, and the levers. And eventually his son asks for permission to go out and to, to look at the river and to, to play along the edge of the bridge. And the drawbridge operator gives him permission. And, and around the time when the train is beginning to come, the, the drawbridge operator starts to look for his son. He can't find him. And he calls out to him and doesn't see him. He can't hear him. And now all of a sudden he hears the train coming. He hears it in the distance. He knows it's only a few more minutes before he needs to close the drawbridge. And now he's frantic. He's going out and he's looking for his son. Where could he be? Needs to make sure his son is safe before the train arrives. The train is getting closer. He looks at his watch and, 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 and with only minutes to spare, he looks down and he sees his son playing out on the middle of the bridge. 
And the analogy goes that the drawbridge operator sees his son out of ear range. And he realizes that for him to run down, to grab his son, to bring him back up onto land, he will not have time to to lower the, the lever of the drawbridge. And in that instant, the drawbridge operator has to choose between the hundreds of lives of passengers on the train or the life of his beloved son. And that drawbridge operator, with tears in his eyes and sorrow in his heart, he pulls down the lever. The bridge closes just as the train arrives. And, and, and weeping in sorrow, he sees the, the people smiling and laughing and waving as they go by, never knowing the sacrifice that he just made in giving up his own son sacrificing his son for the lives of all those people on the train. Now listen, people use that as an analogy to help us understand what God has done for us. And, and there's, there's a fraction, there's, there's a hint of, of, of helpfulness there in, in seeing the sacrifice, the one for the many. But I want you to understand how, how far off that is from the biblical gospel. God the Father didn't make some momentary rash decision. This was not some mistake. This was not some unplanned tragedy. God did not have to decide in a moment, do I sacrifice Jesus or save the lives of millions of of sons and daughters? Do you understand that God the Father in heaven, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, before the foundation of the world, before creation was even made, foreknew, ordained, that Jesus would go to the cross? And I don't know who came up with the idea first, probably the Father, but I will tell you that I do not think there was a a moment's hesitation in the heart of the Son in determining, yes, I will go. Yes, I will sacrifice myself. I will give of myself. And God, you're not going to have to force me. Father, you're not going to have to turn away reluctant because I'm going willingly in the Spirit empowering this plan and, and, and arranging things For Jesus to go to the cross that day. Jesus, the Son, willingly laid down His life for us. Jesus had said that the reason He came to earth was to give His life as a ransom for many. He said that His blood would be poured out for the forgiveness of sins. He knew what was happening. He knew what He was doing. He said in the Gospel of John, I lay down my life of my own accord. No one takes it from me. I have authority to lay it down. And I, I alone have authority to take it up again. Friends, Jesus was crucified by the plan of God. He loves you. He willingly gave his life for you. His death is no tragedy. The only tragedy is our sin. It is Jesus' honorable rescue plan to give his life that we might be set free. Know that. Know know that love. Know what the Son has done for you. Peter, next is going to teach on the necessity and the meaning of the resurrection because we see that Jesus was raised by the power of God. And and what Luke makes clear in his record of Peter's speech is that while humans played a role in, in Jesus' crucifixion, it was God and God alone who raised him from the dead. Look at verse 24. God raised Jesus back to life, putting an end to the pain and agony of death. Why? Because it was impossible for Jesus to be held by the power of death. Look, every human being dies, right? And when you die... By and large, you stay dead. Okay, now there are a few exceptions. You read in the Old Testament, Elijah raised the widow's son. Jesus raised Lazarus and a few others while he was on earth. Right, Miracle Max brought Wesley back to life, although that doesn't technically count because he was only mostly dead. But all of these exceptions prove the rule, right? We all die and we stay dead. But these truths for all of us were not true for Jesus because as the Son of God, 
the Savior of the world. It was impossible for him to stay dead. Peter is now going to prove his point. And we're just going to do a brief overview. But he proves his point by looking at two Old Testament Psalms that foreshadowed the resurrection of the Messiah. The first one is Psalm 16, there in verses 25 and 28. He talks about David, this psalm of David. David, he says, was a patriarch of the faith, the anointed king of Israel. And God had promised that through the line of David would come the Messiah. That a descendant of David would sit on the throne of God for all of eternity. And, and, and we see Psalm 16 quoted. There beginning in verse 25. The Lord is always before me. He is at my right hand, so I will not be shaken. My heart is glad. I will rejoice and have hope because God is with me. God will be with me even in death. Even when I die, David writes, God will not abandon me and leave me to rot in Hades. Hades was the, was the underworld, the place of dead. David writes, but you, God, have made known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. So Peter quotes this psalm, and then in verse 29, he's going to interpret it. He says, look, I can tell you with confidence that David died, that David was buried, that his body decayed. His tomb, Peter says, is still with us today. See, David's not speaking about himself when he wrote those words in Psalm 16. He's speaking prophetically about one of his descendants. David foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Messiah. The one who would not be abandoned to death. Who would not be left in Hades to decay. Jesus is the fulfillment of this psalm. God raised him up. And and Peter says this, I love this. He says, we're all witnesses of this reality. Peter's doing three things here when he, when he looks at the Old Testament passage and he interprets it. First of all, he's validating the reality of Jesus' resurrection. He's saying it happened. We're witnesses. He's, he's secondly, he's saying he's showing that it's the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. And thirdly, I think he's invest, he's inviting the crowd to go investigate it. Right? He says there in verse 29, David's tomb is still here. You're going to find David's body in there, but Jesus' tomb is empty. I think he's essentially saying, go look. If you don't believe me, go look. He, then he says in verse 32, this Jesus God ra- raised up that we are all witnesses. He's saying, we've seen it. You don't believe us? Come up and ask us. Ask us for our testimony. Interview us if you want more information. He's inviting them to investigate his claims that the tomb is empty, that Jesus is risen. Guys, look, I don't know where you're at here this morning. Some of you are here to worship. Some of you are here because your mom or dad promised they'd take you out to lunch if you just came to church. Some of you are here because it's Easter and it's just what you do. If your heart and your soul and your mind is not certain in resting in the reality of Jesus' resurrection, I invite you, I challenge you to investigate just as I believe Peter did. And we can't go look at the empty tomb as, as the crowd could have that day, but we can still investigate the resurrection And we can't talk firsthand to eyewitnesses, but we can and should read and investigate these eyewitness accounts of the New Testament. If you look at the historical evidence for the resurrection, it it mainly falls into, into three main categories. The historical reality of the empty tomb. It's a historical fact that Jesus was crucified, that he was buried. And most scholars, even non-believers, affirm that three days after he was crucified, the tomb was empty. See, if it wasn't, those that opposed the early church, those that sought to put down 
the early movement, they would have produced the body. The question is, why is the tomb empty? Why could no one produce the body of Christ? I I think it's extremely far-fetched to believe that a ragtag group of disciples would have been able to overpower Roman soldiers, steal the body, and coordinate a decades-long hoax of a resurrection. It's just too far-fetched. Secondly, you can look at the eyewitness accounts. The historically reliable New Testament documents record testimony after testimony. They record at one place that over 500 people were witnesses to the resurrected Lord. And this testimony of of, of seeing Jesus was made in, in the face of intense opposition. And many of the eyewitnesses of the resurrection died for their claim. They died for their belief that Jesus was still alive. Thirdly, you can look at the historical impact. See, within weeks of the resurrection, it became the foundation of the Christian faith. And skeptics and opponents were converted. There was an explosion that caused this massive growth of the early church that included radical changes of religious practices, but not only that, radical changes in social structures across the Roman world. All from the early church founded in the resurrection. And the most reasonable explanation for these three facts and claims of history is that Jesus rose from the dead. See, only if you presuppose, well, resurrections don't happen. If you presuppose that resurrections don't happen, you will be forced to interpret these realities and to deduce an alternative reality, a far less reasonable explanation than the fact that Jesus did, in fact, rise from the dead. It's the only reasonable explanation for these facts of history. Look back at verse 33. Peter goes on to say that now that Jesus has been raised back to life, now that he's ascended into heaven and exalted to the right hand of God, the victorious king, he has poured out the promise of the Holy Spirit onto his followers. And Peter says, that's what you're seeing and hearing today. The strange tongues that we're speaking, the glories that we're proclaiming, it's the result of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit that this crucified, risen Savior has sent down to us. He goes on in verses 34 and 35 to To quote from Psalm 110, and he reinforces again the point that Jesus is sitting with God in triumph over his enemies. Psalm 110 is a passage that Jesus himself quoted as having, as as being fulfilled in him. But look at verse 36. Verse 36 is the climax of Peter's sermon. Peter says, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. He says, let there be no doubt. Let there be no doubt to anybody in Israel and in due time the entire world know for certain that Jesus is the Lord and the Christ. See, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is the turning point of history. It's the turning point of God's redemption. It's God's open declaration and affirmation that the redemptive work of Jesus has been accomplished, that Jesus has now every right, full right, final, legitimate authority to take on the messianic title of Lord and Christ. And Peter says to that day, he invites the crowd, he says, consider his life, and I invite you, consider his life. His identity that was foretold in the Old Testament scriptures, that was attested by the signs and wonders of his life. Consider his death, again, foretold in the scriptures, arranged by God, predetermined that Jesus would give his life as a sacrifice for sin. And consider his resurrection, foretold in the scriptures, predicted not only by the Old Testament, but predicted by Jesus himself, that he would walk out of the tomb three days later and and look at what happened. The entire world was transformed. 
Jesus was raised by the power of God and that same work is at work in our lives. And just as Eddie stood up here earlier and and proclaimed the power of the resurrection in his life, I know that many of you could do the same. And, And our brother, our brother could probably tell you about dozens and dozens of men that he served with that faced the same horrors of war that he faced who faced the same, same doubt of their faith, who, who abandoned God in anger, who have lived for eight years, some of them 18 years, some of them 28 years, that still to this day live in desperation and despair and anger and hopelessness, angry at God, living in the midst of broken relationships, bound by the addiction and the battles that our, our brother faced. And do you know the difference between our, our brother Eddie standing here as a new man And the other men that have faced those tragedies, the women that have faced tragedies, whether it be war or abuse or the brokenness of this world, it's the power of the resurrection. It's the only explanation for what enabled him to stand up, that enables him to love his wife, to raise his daughters, to proclaim hope, to have overcome uh, the addiction to alcohol, the striving after our cars and, and money, the anger the depression, the desire to end his life. It's the power of the resurrection that's at work in the lives of Christians. Jesus said in John 11, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And Jesus asked the woman that he spoke these first words to, do you believe this? Friends, that's the question. Do you believe this? Do you believe that Christ not only rose again, but that his power can cause you to rise again, to you to be born again? Give me five more minutes. Let's look at this last section in verse 37, where we see Peter proclaim the hope that we can be saved by the promise of God. The people that heard that day in verse 37 said that they were cut to the heart. They were blown away, floored. Their hearts were open. And people started calling out to Peter and the apostles, what do we do? This is amazing. What do we do now? We're hearing this. We believe it. Now what? And Peter says three things. He says, repent, be baptized, and receive the Spirit. He says in verses 39 and 40 that the promise of salvation, he says it's for you, for those that are standing there that first day in Jerusalem. He says it's for your children and it's for any and all who stand far away from God. See, listen, since the very first day that Adam and Eve, our first parents, turned from God, rebelled against Him, God promised to save His people and God does not forget His promises. The gospel message is for the Jewish descendants of Israel, but it's also for the Gentiles across the world, for everyone who calls the Lord Jesus, Lord and Savior. Everyone who God calls to Himself. He says in 40 that all who come in faith can be delivered from the harmful and hurtful, from the corrupt and crooked generation of this world. And that day, the very first time the resurrection was proclaimed by the power of the Holy Spirit, those original 125 faithful followers of Jesus to that day was added 3,000 men and women. And here we are today, 2,000 years later, celebrating the turning point of history that Jesus was crucified by the plan of God, that he was raised by the power of God. And friends, today we can find forgiveness, we can find new life, we can find meaning in this life, the love of God, and everlasting life through faith in God's promise. And God's promise is for everyone, the scripture says, even for those that are far off. 
And there are some here today, some listening online that feel far off. You feel disconnected. You, you have been so long this last year since you've connected with Christian community, you're not even sure if it matters, if you care, if you believe. Others that simply feel so far off because you feel unworthy and you feel ashamed and you feel dirty, you feel far off from God's grace and love. Some, some feel so far off, you say, my sin is too deep. Others feel far off because you're just disinterested, you don't care, just let me live my life. This gospel is for, for you, even for those that are far off. So what do we do? What do we do? What does Peter say? First he says, repent. I call you today to repent, to turn from your sin. Confess, you know what, God, I've lived apart from you. I've tried doing it on my own. To repent means to turn from your, your sin and your flesh and the, the priorities of this world and to turn to God and to say, I need you. I need you. He says, repent and be baptized. To be baptized is, is to proclaim your faith. See, receiving water baptism is the outward sign of your inner faith. It's your entrance into the church, into Christian community. To be baptized means, God, I believe that I have joined with Jesus in his death and I have joined with Jesus in his resurrection. Put faith in him as your savior. And the third thing Peter says is receive the Holy Spirit. You repent, you believe, receive the Holy Spirit. That's not so much something you do as something that's done to you. You will receive the Holy Spirit as a gift. Brothers and sisters, the Spirit of God will fill you with new life, with the resurrection life, that power that peace to faithfully live out the Christian life, to overcome all the tragedy of your past. Listen, knowing God, finding meaning, reaching eternity, doesn't come through your own religious efforts, doesn't come through your hard work, it comes through the promise of God, the promise of God filling you. And as we read in Psalm 16, God has made known to us us the path of life. In His presence there is fullness of joy, pleasures forevermore. And so listen, as the worship team comes, as we prepare to to worship and to give praise again, be reminded, put hope again in the resurrection of Christ. For those that can look back at that turning point in your life, be encouraged, be built up in faith. But for those that are here today, for those that are listening, and your only reality is darkness and struggle and pain and difficulty, come to Christ Turn to Him. The resurrection is true and it can be true for you. Put your faith in the risen Christ and let Him be the turning point of your life. Don't just believe it, but live it. Don't just live it, proclaim it to the world. Will you stand with me? Father in heaven, we thank you for your grace and your love, for your plan and your purpose. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you gave of yourself, that you willingly came to earth to die for us. We thank you, Holy Spirit, for speaking truth into our hearts, for bringing the power of the resurrection into our lives. I pray that each and every person hearing this today would be filled with the Spirit of God, that faith would be renewed or faith would be birthed for the first time that we would know the power of the resurrection, that we would know the freedom from our sin that comes through the death of Jesus, that we would be filled with the Spirit of God. Give us grace to never again be the same. Give us grace to, to look at Jesus and to be transformed. Bear up faith in us. Stir us. Call us to live for Christ. We thank you for your grace and your love in Jesus' name.